You're listening to Leading with Empathy and Allyship, where we have deep, real conversations to build empathy for one another and to take action to become more inclusive leaders in our workplaces and communities. I'm Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst. I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, writer, and advisor. You can learn more about my work and sign up to join us for a live recording at changecatalyst.co slash allyship series. All right, let's dive in. Today, we have Cherie Atchison, author of Demanding More. We're going to have a conversation about engaging leadership to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion. Welcome. Welcome, Cherie. Thank you. Thank you. So excited to be here. So, Cherie, I always like to start by talking about your story. I think that that builds empathy and understanding and kind of brings us closer. So, um, could you say a bit about your story and how you came to do the work you do? Yeah, of course. So for context, I guess I've been doing senior leadership in diversity, equity and inclusion for almost a decade now. And I did this work really because I wanted to make things better. What the thing was at the time, I didn't quite know when I started this work. In my previous life, I was a software engineer, so I witnessed a lot of the problems I'm trying to fix. Now, you may be able to tell by my accent that I am Irish. Um, You also may have had the thought in your head that a lot of Irish people don't look like Cherie looks like with dark skin and dark eyes um, and are Asian. So I was adopted when I was three weeks old from Sri Lanka by a white family. I was raised in rural Ireland where when there is traffic jams or slow traffic, it's because a farmer is moving his cows from one field to another. Um, So super rural, very undiverse as you can imagine. And I share that, my brother is also adopted as well, but I share that because a lot of people have the experience of being the only in a boardroom in a meeting, in your workplace. And I have that experience too. But I actually also have the experience of being the only in my family, in my extended family, in my school, in my friend circle, in all of the different spaces, I guess, people would typically find people that they really closely relate to. I think that's really important because it gives you a perspective that sits with you you know it sits with why you do what you do how you see the world how the world sees you as well and certainly growing up in Ireland um, you know I faced quite a lot of racism as did my brother um, albeit still being very privileged to have been adopted in the first place to be able to have the benefits of something as simple as a bed each night food each night I am acutely aware of what it means to live my life as a woman of color from being from Ireland, but also someone from a poor background. My parents were on benefits. I grew up on free school meals, meals, which is like state provided meals when you're at school. And that privilege or that lack of privilege and the transition to privilege I now have has given me a lot of really different lived experience. But again, mending or melding that world with my engineering background, I was working in creating inclusive technologies for high profile public sector projects in the UK, like registering to vote, visa applications and so on and immigration pieces. And my work transitioned from that where I was doing a lot of this work for organizations from a strategy perspective and a really data driven strategy perspective. Um, 
And I guess I dived into this work. I led the non-profit expansion of Women Who Code across the UK. Um, women Who Code is now the world's largest non-profit globally dedicated to women in technology. And I led that expansion for a number of years. I'm now a board member at that organization. But the, the journey has been very different, very unique, but certainly incredibly rewarding. And I do think, you know, this work, sometimes it finds you in a different way that, than you would expect. Like I've studied computer science at university. I have a very different background than a lot of folks that do this work, but I personally think that's a, a benefit in some ways. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing your story. I appreciate that. And I will say, like, I don't think I've met a single person that works on diversity, equity, and inclusion and started out doing that, right? Started out like, this is what I'm going to do. I, something happens in our lives and, and there's a reflection point or an inflection point and we mm. go down this path. It's not necessarily an easy one. <laughs> so we're here to talk about leadership and let's start with what do you see as the leader's role in diversity, equity, and inclusion? I think that there's a really important distinction between senior leadership and middle management. And I think it's really important when you define a strategy when you start to engage those people that you really understand the separation and differences in those roles. For me, senior leadership roles, C-suite, director and above, those kinds of roles, those roles are really there to put weight behind the vision of diversity, equity and inclusion, to really actively support, promote and amplify it, but also take on board how it's relevant for their vision that they define for the remits that they oversee. They aren't necessarily the people operationalizing, bringing that vision to life, but they define the vision. They define what's happening in that company in 12 months, 15 months, two years, 10 years, whatever it might be. And the same is relevant when it comes to DE&I. And that role is crucial because the rest of the company will take momentum from that. When it comes to the actual creating of the inclusive environments, that piece must work in tandem with the education, awareness and accountability piece that exists at that space, but also exists heavily in the middle management space. Because those are the people that are working with, for example, the junior mid-tier talent almost every day. They're the people that they're interacting with. So if we don't connect those two things, that senior leadership on that middle management piece, we don't make any changes. Do we then see words without action or we see action without words and neither of those things are useful by themselves. And the middle management role is really around that operational piece. You know, how are you leading teams? How are you promoting people? Who are you hiring into the business? What decisions are you making? What happens when people raise issues of discrimination, of harassment and so on? And how do you react to that? And that engagement piece and the education piece for that group, that's empowering managers to be those changes that we need is so crucial in this work and certainly in, in demanding more I really delve into both of those things because I think they're so different but all too often people take a blanket approach to both and it doesn't work. Yeah I would say you know even a lot of a lot of companies take a blanket approach to doing training across the organization just the same training the same education learning development across the organization. And um, that's one thing that we've definitely learned is there are things that executives need to learn uh, about their role in all of this. And 
there's some common things that we all need around common language, common understanding. And, you know, we all need to be allies and advocates. But even in allyship and advocacy, there are different roles that executives play versus management versus independent contributors. And so really, I think it's important to make sure that you're addressing each of those uh, layers within the organization. 100% agree. Yeah. And I think that's the key part is, let's say you, you, you develop a product, you work in marketing, whatever it is that you work in, you work towards what your audience needs. This is no different. You're working towards what that audience needs. If your audience is C-suite and senior management or your audience is middle management, you should be tailoring your approach. And again, this is why this, this strategy piece and the, the skill set piece of this work is so important, because if you're not doing that, you're just not doing it well enough and it won't, won't make that change that, that we all really, really need. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, one thing that often comes up on this show, I think one of the most common questions that people ask is how do we get leaders to understand the importance of DEI? How do we get them? How do we move them? How do we get them to own their role in this? I think one of one of the things that I think is, is super important in the first instance of bringing anybody um, on this journey is understanding the perspectives of why they have the viewpoint they have at the moment. Because whilst I may disagree with a lot of people in their viewpoints and so on, if I don't understand it, I can't really truly bring that person along because I'm not tailoring my communications again and tailoring the the initiatives or the strategy or the education that that person needs to bring them on a journey. Again, people are not a monolith. We have all of these different kinds of people and our, our communication should be tailored as well. The other key thing here is that remember that not everybody knows what they don't know. One of the biggest pitfalls I see mm. in DEI strategies, having done this for a decade, is that people will make an assumption that everyone has a baseline knowledge. And that's not the case. I make the assumption that everybody knows absolutely nothing <laughs> and then go from there with that common understanding piece to make sure that people that don't understand aren't left behind. When it actually comes to bringing people along that are detractors, firstly, I think you should really, really focus your energy on those that are you know, potentially lukewarm or quite hot to DE&I in the first place. Because one, there will be times where you will not move people along. You have to accept that. But what you should do is really focus on getting the majority of those people that are lukewarm, that don't know what they don't know, but want to know into that hot space, that actively promoting the DE&I field. And if you think about this from a, a behavioral transformation piece, and that's what it is, is the detractors, for the most part, the majority of them will either start to move to being lukewarm and start to be quiet, and you will have a small subset that will still detract. But again, that societal piece, that piece where they respect their peer group for the most part and will align with what they do. So remember that that part is key, that if you focus all of your energy onto the detractors that are being very openly pushing against it and not getting it, you may miss the trick with the other majority group that usually is in that lukewarm middle phase. We, and also we can spend so our whole energy focused on the detractors or, whole, you know, often I see companies initially when they're first kind of addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion, that is where they start is with the detractors and trying to move them forward. But you can do much, so much more change if you, if you really give people that are looking for what to do, the actions that they can take. Exactly. Like we joked at the start, this is really hard work. <laughs> it yes. is really hard work. <laughs> it is, it is. Yeah. 
and energy sources are limited you know especially now energy sources feel like they're almost always on you know 60% as opposed to even close to 100% so remember that when you're doing this work that is your energy and is the work that you're trying to do best focused on those that potentially negate that more so than other people and the answer to that is no it's not and it's important to keep that in in your mind's eye as well yeah um and so uh just kind of a follow up question to based on that is what do you do if your whole leadership team is not there what do you do to kind of you know move them forward or can you yeah i think you absolutely can and i think it from my own approach everything that i start with starts with privilege awareness and this is something i talk about quite a lot because i think it's incredibly important when you bring people on that journey of self introspection and self awareness on actually how privilege manifests not just in our day to day but actually in how processes how it manifests and embeds itself down in our processes and i think when you start the education journey i always start with that opening up the conversation sharing what the lay of the land is globally using different statistics and data points but moving into helping them open up that conversation by themselves so as they for the most part get an awareness that even if you are in a majority demographic even if you are in a homogeneous group right now that this is still relevant to you because of all of these different reasons and when it comes to actually i guess embedding that accountability piece i think for me when i embed accountability i i i use data quite a lot and i know this is something i talk about too much about being um incredibly data driven and that's where i think people analytics can be incredibly useful so for example what i do in pecon where i work at the moment is it using pecon which is an employee engagement tool um i analyze all of our senior management teams inclusion scores around diversity inclusiveness non-discrimination management support loyalty all of those kinds of things under the people that have rated them in the employee base i then do analysis to see actually why is that changing why is that getting worse why is it getting better and then i define two to three actions that they must complete within a quarter and they get one of these scorecards every quarter and it's tied to their business goals or okrs so again when you talk about accountability those kind of measures are really impactful because again quite a lot of these people whilst they may care they don't know what they don't know they don't know what they need to fix and embedding and giving that kind of almost spoon feeding that report card kind of methodology or way of working really embeds that down in um in bringing people on that journey so as they know, start to learn how they personally and systemically can make an impact in the areas that they have control over if anyone is interested in kind of going deeper into the data we we talked with Danny Allen VP of tech diversity and inclusion at SAP in episode 20 the whole episode was focused on using data to drive change so lots of kind of echoing what you you said and going much deeper so if anybody is interested in kind of going deep into the data there's that's, there's a whole episode that we have on that awesome so you talked about you know you need kind of three things education awareness and accountability when someone is in a company and isn't in hr isn't in dni but wants to create change how would you recommend they do that you know you might feel like you don't have any power within the organization to create change or you know how do we influence without power essentially yeah i i think one of the the biggest things when it comes to influencing without power 
is remembering that you are more than likely not a singular voice. And this is where I think it's incredibly important to be able to bring together, to connect with people in the business, et cetera, that want to make change as well and doing it as an entity as opposed to a singular person. Now, the reason for that as well is that psychological safety plays a huge part in people feeling comfortable in raising things. You usually have some form of privilege to feel comfortable to say, actually, I'm not happy with what's happening right now. Let me raise my hand. And mm. communicating from an entity for a group of people, you know, this group of employees have created a one pager of things that they're not happy with. This is what we think we can do to make it better. Engaging the allies as well that you will have in middle management at senior leadership as well. One of the things that I think people should focus in on, especially if you're in that position where you feel like you don't have power, is you know, coming together with a number of other employees, but also tapping into the people that you know that do get it in more senior roles than you first. So is the message that you're sending then isn't doesn't just have to come from you and that group, but actually from them as well, because it is difficult. And I know it can be difficult if you don't feel like you're comfortable doing mm. that. I also think organizations need to prioritize psychologically safe and anonymous ways for people to share these things. And, and that's why, you know, I came to work where I work right now. It's why I, I use those kinds of tools in all of my strategies, because when you don't do that, you create environments where only those who are privileged in whatever way that might be are willing to share. And that gives you a very small subset or introspection into what it actually means to exist in company X. Um, and that's a very like a false positive and false positives aren't any use in inclusion work. Yeah. So in your book, one of the things you talk about is that leaders are the role models of the business. So, so yeah. practically speaking, how do we move leaders from awareness and that basic understanding to becoming role models? I think mean, that is a, a big challenge, right? What do we do to kind of get them there? And I, and I will say, um, you know, this is a lot of what I do in my executive training and inclusive leadership coaching is really, you know, building that empathy and the skills and the courage as well to become role models. Yeah. How would you say that we should do that? I, I talk about this quite a lot. I think leadership is one of the biggest privileges you can have. I feel incredibly privileged to be a leader because one, it means that I am listened to and being listened to is probably one of the biggest privileges you can have. And two, it means that I have an ability to define a, define a vision that will be delivered in some way, shape or form. So when I talk about leaders being role models, the first thing is the awareness of the weight that you have and the privilege you have to be in that position, to be in a position that you are listened to by your employees, by your remit, and also about how you live the values of that company. And this is what's really important because um, in a lot of the exact coaching and stuff that I do as well, it's really, it's all well and good to say, you know, I'm a role model. I will stand up and say my pronouns at the start of an event or I will you know speak out reactively but actually what else are you doing as well that moves forward moves past just those things that you do and the the piece that I think is has always been impactful and I when I do this in organizations and with people is understanding firstly company values now really defining and reviewing what they are is inclusion incorporated in throughout those how do you then expect leaders to live those values in their remits. And this is one of the really important things is the clarity and what it actually means to live those values and what you expect of leaders, because values should be role modeled and they should be role modeled by leaders and upcoming leaders for the most part. Everybody else as well, but those are the people that people will look to. And if they don't live your values, 
then your values are just words on a page. And so a big part of actually tying that to progression, tying that to how you are rated when it comes to performance reviews and so on is key because it makes sure that the words that you say on your company statement, on your website page, your careers page, is actually relevant to the company DNA and the leadership DNA that you expect. And I, I genuinely think that when you are able to bring leaders on that role model journey, and it takes time, it absolutely takes time, it does not happen overnight, that you're able to really make an impact in an authentic way. And I guess that's whenever I describe my work, it's that it's authentic inclusion that scales. And this is the, the key part here is that it's authentic. It's authentic to the company. It's authentic to the leaders. And it's authentic to the people that are looking up, looking upwards and one day wanting to be on in that seat as well. Could we talk a little bit more about accountability? You have the data and you're kind of measuring it and, and, and using it to, to share where those opportunities are for change, right? And how do you take that data and hold people accountable? Where does that, you know, where, where does that foundation come from? Yeah, I, I think when we talk about, and I use data in everything in understanding if processes are equitable, if defining if the initiatives that I do are successful or not successful, um, and in a really granular way. But I think when it comes to embedding accountability with data, the regularity you report on it is key. If it's once a year, that's really not enough because that's too long. If you even think about last year, which was a year that was up and down and down and down and down and up a bit more and then down again. And um, it was a tough year and this year is also tough. But last year has tested a lot of us in lots of different ways. And if you're only reporting and holding your leaders to account to that data once a year, it's not good enough because it's too long to be able to see when things go wrong. And this is why when I define my strategies, I don't just define for success. The big, almost the biggest part of my strategy is defining for the failure piece. What happens if we don't meet that goal? And that's the key part of the accountability piece is actually if we commit to doing X, what happens if we don't make it? Who is accountable for that? And what are the repercussions? Because there has to be repercussions, whether that's around, you know, management progression, whether that's around conversations and interventions to understand where they went wrong and how that's relevant, tying into the C-suite. There has to be those lines of when it falls through. When you think of like a try-catch statement, you know, you try and do something, but you need something to catch it when it doesn't fall through or when it doesn't see through. And that's for me with the really big thing with accountability is because more often than not, I see organizations committing to doing, let's say, X representation goal by 2030. But then when they don't make it, it's very simply, we haven't made it, it's now moved to 2050. Where is the repercussions for that? So there's no incentive to push and push hard. And that's why, again, that C-suite buy-in is key. So for example, like in um, what we do in PECON is that when we, we were in the middle of rolling out a commitment to not making a hire until we had interviewed X number of people at a senior leadership level. And if someone was trying to commit to a hire without having done that, they would have had to complete a form which would state when they, what they tried to do to meet the criteria, why it didn't meet the criteria and anything else that was relevant. And it would only get signed off once myself, the chief people officer and the CEO had reviewed it. And it was a very rare occasion that we would sign that off. So that's what I mean by accountability when things aren't met. It's not good enough to just do this for when everything is, you know, 
sunshine and rainbows because like we said at the start this work is not easy and it's not sunshine and rainbows most of the time so <laughs> yeah and definitely not right now <laughs> no it's not it's really 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 not <laughs> A lot of companies are in this kind of thinking this through right now, especially after the murder of George Floyd and the kind of real public response and uh, internal employee response to to like needing to create change, pushing for change. So a lot of companies and leaders are in a new space of saying, oh, this really is something we need to to work on. And, and so there's kind of buy-in, but then there are, there's a huge wave of companies that are just starting from the beginning. Where would you recommend mm-hmm. starting? I always say to people that you should always start with listening. Um, and I've been saying this for, for years. Um, every strategy that I create, because I, I typically join companies when they're at that stage of, we want to do something, we don't know what something is but we know we want to do something. Again, when I'm consulting with organizations, that's when I come in as well. The key part here is the listening because otherwise what you define is assumption-based and assumptions are riddled with bias. And what's really important here, and I I know it's from my engineering background and, and developing software, but I would never have been one allowed to or ever have thought to roll out a solution without gathering requirements from the user. I would never do that. You never do that unless you are very bad at your job. <laughs> and the key thing here is that same methodology in DEI strategies. Listening must be a core part. Now, I personally use Agile in all of my creation. So I listen, I define what I want to do, I roll it out, I continue to listen in a circle and change what I need to change as the feedback comes in. Start with doing that, start with getting a temperature check on what is happening in your business. Don't just roll up and make an assumption that because company X has done something that you and company Y need to do the same thing. Um, Tailor that down. Once you do that listening, though, make sure that you commit to some amount of action. And that may be something, maybe it's only even one thing, a quarter, two things, a half a year or whatever it might be. But commit to doing something and commit to putting weight behind it. Because what we tend to see is organizations will listen And then they will try to do everything at once. And organization transformation does not work like that, especially if you haven't hired a senior leader like myself or someone to come in and actually own this. So be realistic, be transparent with what you're going to do, share regularly and often what you've been working on, whether it's worked, whether it's not, and then be clear on what's coming next. All too often as well, organizations will only share a comp when some big bang idea has happened and it's been successful. But again, you've not engaged people in the journey. So how would they know how it's relevant to them, what your company is doing and so on. And that's again, why we start to see a discrepancy in what is happening in your DEI team, even if it's just mm. volunteers and how mm. employees think you're doing things. So they think you're not doing stuff, but you actually are and you're not communicating it. And the, the really key piece here is that we, we see a lot of performative pieces of work. We know that that's happening. We've seen that even more so in the last year after the murder of George Floyd. But what we also found in, in our in PECON's data sets, we have the world's largest standardized data set on employee engagement. And we did analysis at the end of last year. And what we found was that after the murder of George Floyd in the middle of last year, that we've seen a huge uptick, a 25% increase or increase in diversity, equity and inclusion comments around racial inclusion. But what we also found was one in 10 of those comments were from white women and white men voicing resistance to change. That's happening in your company right now. 
that's happening right now. It's happening in leadership. It's happening in the rest of the company. The key thing here, like I said, is that try catch. What happens when you find out that that's happening? How are you addressing it? How are you bringing people on this journey? But also, how are you dealing with those that will consistently push and push and push? Because mm. you have to make a decision. Do you want people like that in the business or do you not? And that is a decision that some organizations find very, very hard to make, but you got to make it. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And the, the best, the easiest way to do it is to embed it in the hiring process to begin with. So you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have as hard of a time getting, you know, yeah. making those hard decisions later. I think we should have just kind of addressed really quickly, you know, ways to listen. What what can you do? I mean, there's surveys. Mm-hmm. And I, I would recommend that you pick multiple modes of listening because there are different different people that prefer yeah. to, to give comments in different ways. And, you know, surveys, listening mm-hmm. sessions, uh, town halls, candid conversations, all of, all of these are different kind of w- ways that, that companies are addressing this. Anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. What what I would always say to people is remember what you do needs to scale. Mm-hmm. So if you only do listening sessions, that doesn't scale. If you only do, let's say, in-person conversations, that doesn't scale. If you only do, let's say, town halls, let's say every month or every two months, that's not regular enough for everybody to feel like they can share. And that's why the combination of those things and you know certainly a tool to survey is that sweet spot is all of those things working at once to allow all different people to come together, but also to give you the analytics that you need to do this in a way that is streamlined and efficient because your time in these roles is so stretched, it's so tight that when you spend more time doing admin work, that you don't need to when a tool can do that for you. It's almost wasted effort. So this is why everything I talk about is an inclusion that that scales out. And again, I think that comes from when I used to have to develop technology systems that um, would be able to bear X number of users that maybe we would never get just in case we would end up with millions of people on site at once. And I think that's the same methodology. You know, what you do should scale out because most businesses are getting bigger for the most part. So Think about it early and think about it often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things you talk about is moving people to the majority. I really talked about that yet. Can you say a bit about what you mean there and what that looks like? Yeah. So what I mean by that is moving people to being engaged in this work, moving people to being actively involved in this work, as opposed to a silent bystander, someone who's not actively engaging in a way that makes sense for them. And when I talk about moving people on that journey. For me, education is a huge piece of this work. Now, when I do and I rule out education pieces in organizations, it is always a long-term learning path. For example, it's not just here's a session on X, have fun, and then there's nothing less. It's actually like incremental modules like you would get in school, like you would get in university, when you expect to start from the basics and then work your way up to really bring people on a journey that is phased, that is appropriate, and that does give them the education to move them on that journey into the majority of getting what we're talking about. It's once we have that education and we continue that education in a cycle moving forward, incorporating it into performance cycles, your promotion. So, you know, at certain levels, certain modules are mandatory and so on is 
actually about the actions that we want people to take. Now, for the most part, at the beginning, when you start to move people into that majority, you will have to help them with what it means to do X, whether it's what it means to be an intersectional ally. What does it mean to be inclusive in your team, running inclusive meetings, inclusive language, all of the things that maybe people like us know like the back of our hand and take for granted. Again, like I said, assume everybody knows nothing and start from scratch mm-hmm. and moving people into that majority space where they start to get more confident, where they start to feel comfortable and then providing them some avenues to start to take that ownership themselves. But for me, that first part is so crucial that it is almost handholding in some ways. But I really think that's needed when you talk about something like this, which is transformative. It takes time and it's really, it can be overwhelming if you don't know where to start. So if you are the person with the expertise on where to start, my job a lot of the time is really bringing people on it's at scale in a way that makes sense for them before they start to go in to the avenues that they're interested in, that they want to delve into, whether it's in tech and marketing, whatever it might be. Thank you. Okay. Jumping into Q&A here, how can you dampen the argument that to focus on one characteristic like race or gender, it can get quite competitive between groups. How do you address that? And and so many companies right now are focused on race. Before last year, there were very a lot of companies really focused on gender. Now sometimes gender and race, but not sexual orientation, not disability, etc. Yeah. When when we talk about focusing on one thing, one area does not exist as a box as it is. And, and I, I, wrote, I wrote about this for, for Forbes recently because there was a piece of research um, that was shared, I can't remember by what organization, that had shared that 140,000 jobs were lost in December by women. And when you actually looked at the piece itself, it was very clear that all of the women in the US, the 140,000 that lost jobs were Black and Latin women. And white women actually made gains, as did white men. And I wrote about this and I named it, you know, women are not a monolith and we need to stop treating them as such. The key message here is that if you focus on race and ethnicity, that's not a group, okay? Because women of color exist and so on. Men of color exist, non-binary folks of color exist and everything and anything and then between all of those different things. And what the key part here is if your main focus is in one area, you still have to capture, even if it's two to three other areas, at a minimum to give you some level of nuance because when you don't have some level of nuance you create exclusionary inclusion and I talk about this a lot because we have seen this happen Mm. (laughs) I'm so tired of seeing it because I come into organizations and I have to break down the exclusionary inclusion they've created which for the most part is either in gender or it's in race and ethnicity yeah. Can I add one to that? Is like, yeah. you know, making a, what is it, maybe particulatory or something like, I'm not sure what the word is exactly, but it's dividing identities, right? And somebody can have multiple identities as well. Yeah, I, I remember I was doing um, a conference um, slot once and I was doing some Q&A after and someone had asked me, one of the questions was, do you feel like you've had a more difficult time through being a woman or being a person of color? And I was like, I can't separate myself in that way. I mean, I don't know how people would treat me as I literally can't exist in that way. And, and even actually as someone who has a, like a Western name and an Irish accent. So if mm. I cover the camera right now, you may think that I am a white Irish woman. So even I sometimes may have that 
element of being able to be viewed as a woman only, but that doesn't last very long because as soon as I come on camera, as soon as you Google my name, you see a wash of pictures of me with dark skin. So the the conversation it can't be split in that way. And that's why when I talk about data, that data aggregation piece is incredibly key. And what I would say to organizations or people struggling to have that conversation is to at least push forward or push towards having at a minimum two to three attributes and make it very clear around the discrepancies in industry that exist for, let's say, if the people's focus is on gender. Okay, so then let's really, really look at the differences in how, for example, white women, Asian women, black women, and so on are treated. The data is all there. And it's really important about painting that picture a lot of the time, because a lot of the time, that lack of awareness comes from blissful ignorance. And what we can't allow is blissful ignorance because we have to be very clear that there is differences, but we won't capture them if we don't do that overlay piece. Yeah, yeah, um, 100% agree. <laughs> so Brittany asks, if you have leadership that doesn't appear to take action, driven interest in improving diversity or inclusion, not a detractor, but just not interested, what is the best strategy to take to get that man engagement from senior leaders? Yeah, I think I think the, the piece around getting people that, you know, don't know what they don't know um, mm-hmm. is making it relevant to them. At, at a most base level, humans are selfish. Humans are relatively self-centered, all of us in some way, shape or another. Even when we really try not to be, we are mostly focused on our own bubble, our own lives and the intersection of both of those things. When we talk about engaging people that, you know, just kind of exist around DE&I and aren't really engaged, honing in on the communication on how it's relevant specifically to them how they can use their power or privilege for positive, centering that piece, but also around how it's relevant to the remit of control that they may have. Because one of the things I do notice with quite a lot of people that sit in unengaged space is that they don't feel like it's relevant to them because there's nothing they can do that sits at an organization-wide level that is big enough to make a difference when actually it is big enough to make a difference. One person is big enough to make a difference, but it's really about the engagement and the awareness and education for those people and giving them that appetite to know that actually, yes, this does make a change. And I think when we talk about allyship and that's a really big part of allyship is that awareness that even if you are someone who is in a intern role or intern role or junior role and so on, the sphere of influence you have is still at your team, at your friends, at your family, at the places that you hang out whenever we were allowed to leave the house and all of these different things. And that means that you can still do these things just in a different way. And that's certainly for me been one of the biggest ways to bring people in that journey is helping them really understand, actually, yes, I can make an impact, even though I feel like I'm not something enough. Um, Okay, so uh, Sherry asks, one thing I talk a lot about is making the implicit explicit, specifically to make social behavioral norms explicit, all the things that everyone knows, in quotes, you should or should not do, except that not everyone knows. Do you address that in your data collection and trainings? And if so, how? Yeah, so I guess when when it comes to, I guess, unearthing the, what's the right word? I guess unearthing the hidden things that we all know happen, but actually nobody talks about them. That's for me where the people analytics piece is really, really key and a level of data of understanding. So what I do, for example, with, with PCON and with surveying in that way is being able to understand the things like, you know, loyalty around management support, peer support, even um, reward and so on. But breaking down those different survey responses 
by those protected characteristics that I capture so that I can very clearly see, actually, are we saying that everyone's treated fairly? Well, actually, I'm seeing that Black women, for example, are rating a sense of support much lower than their white counterparts. Why is that happening? What are we going to do about that? And when, whenever I define my initiatives, that is how I'm using data. I am actively going in and interrogating the data at that level to really understand how we unearth those things, but also how we define initiatives that answer to them. If you don't have that level of granularity, and I appreciate some people don't, what is key here is those listening pieces that we mentioned before, but also the regularity of those listening pieces, because you need to start to understand the theme and the consistent things that are happening as well. Because if it happens to one person, it's more than likely happening to more than one person. And being able to really have an understanding of that in the workplace is key to be able to answer to it. And what I would also say is that this work requires at times for you to be that person to stand up and speak. I have to stand up and speak all the time. And I'm very comfortable doing that as someone with the privilege of being a leader and being confident now. But that means that you have to be willing to call out those things. You shouldn't realistically do this work if you're not going to do that. And that mm. means uncomfortable conversations, but not even just uncomfortable conversations. I almost think that undersells it. That means, I don't know what the word is, but it's very, you know, shedding a light on something that has had, has been in darkness for years. That's, that's our job. That's what we're here to do. And, and that means that sometimes unearthing those things, you got to be that person. Yeah, and that's uh, part of the the difficult part of this job that we talked about earlier too. And and I think you know mm-hmm. what goes hand in hand with that mm-hmm. because this is this work is you know we have the requirement of doing that, and that sometimes we can then go into some real toxicity. There is we have to work on healing ourselves too through this process and and how how we manage that. You know, I, I've been thinking about this lately because I, I'm constantly speaking and I'm constantly speaking about my story and my past traumas. And every single time I speak, it brings it back up, right? And every time we yeah. are building empathy for each other and listening, and, uh, you know, there is that level of kind of trauma and toxicity that we have to then let go of. So yeah. taking care of ourselves is really important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think one of like I, I talk very openly about my background and the other stuff that I haven't mentioned on, on this podcast. And I think that's there's so much weight when you do this work. And there, again, as a as a woman of color from a poor background and so on, I'm very aware that if I wasn't in senior leadership, I would be faced, I would be treated very differently. I would mm. be facing a hell of a lot more issues than the issues that I face right now. And there is that weight when you realize that you're trying to fix the things that affect people like you and people not like you it's heavy it's it's tiring at times um, yeah. and th- it is incredibly important to as you mentioned taking that that time for yourself as well to give yourself that that seat to just not do something for a period of time <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and, and not to discourage anyone from doing this because this work is so important we all can and hopefully are doing this to some to certain degrees and it's just that we embed in that work the time to recharge and to refuel yep. and to uh, to heal. Okay, lots more questions. Um, <laughs> so uh, we have an anonymous question on what's the importance of having representation of identities on DNI and leadership and comms teams? I mean, and so maybe we can go one step further because we know that's really important is, do you have any recommendations for ways to do that and kind of push that forward? Yeah, I, I think what, what organizations need to do is prioritize the actual 
engagement, acquisition, and so on of people from those different backgrounds. When people ask me, you know, I'm why are, for example, tech industries not able to hire more women? Because they're not trying hard enough. They're not committing to really doing it. They're talking about doing it quite a lot. But one, they're not committing to doing it. And two, they're not addressing the problems that exist internally for those groups of people to really thrive and survive. And the, the key thing when it comes to really bringing people in or getting people in is that diversity and representation is not a singular marker of inclusion. It simply isn't. It's one marker amongst many. And what's key is that when you do bring those people in is how are you actually interrogated and addressed the processes that are biased towards them? Because they will be if they are in the minority, if they haven't, if they don't exist in the majority demographics. And when we talk about representation, etc. as well, there will be organizations that don't have representation yet. What I would say to you is to make sure that you are actively still considering the perspectives and experiences of those different people, whether it's through even creating, you know, a standing seat or an empty seat in those leadership meetings and so on, who's someone in a junior mid-tier role to share those insights from those different backgrounds whilst you prioritize hiring in. Do not create something without the different perspectives. Again, when you think about testing something, what do the user personas look like? Have you considered those from all different backgrounds to make sure that you're actually addressing the issues to talking and creating the solutions that matter? And that's why even if you don't have representation in the room yet, you can still very much still tap in and understand the different perspectives whilst you work and prioritize that piece too. There's no excuse to not do it until you have someone in the room. Brian asks in the chat, we are building an allyship program for men and everyone at the company I work at. Any suggestions on the best way to do this? So I think the first thing is I should be for everyone because you mentioned men slash all. It's definitely all. I was on, on one conversation before and, and another speaker had suggested that her as a woman couldn't be an ally to other women simply not the case you like especially as someone who is white as well that's definitely not the case and um, what I would suggest is that you start off with opening up the conversation around firstly people's own introspection on how they exist in the world that privilege piece is where I always start when I develop an allyship program because when you move straight into telling people this is the things that you can do to make it better you miss the opportunity at the start to really help them open up a conversation on themselves first. And that's always a key part because if you don't have an awareness on the privilege or disadvantages or so on that you that you may experience day to day, like year to year and so on, it's very difficult for you to really genuinely root in and understand what to do to help those that are not as privileged as you. So that privileged conversation is what I always start with and then start to move into things like understanding the intersectionality element because when you talk about privilege it's easier to start to talk about intersectionality because you have that awareness and then moving into actually allyship what does it mean how does it work what are some things that you can do how do you continually learn the resources that you should tap into and so on to really go on that journey um, and for me it's really those sort of three stages um, in, in doing that um, which is potentially you know a more phased approach than some people do but I, I think when you invest that time in that way it's more impactful. 
Yeah, yeah. Maybe we can address that more in another episode too. We've been doing a lot of work with helping companies to build programming around allyship and advocacy and 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 that it really does take a series of learnings and kind of you start with foundations and then continue to open and build upon that and build upon that and build upon that. And, you know, everything all at once doesn't work, right? You have to really kind of build upon the knowledge, build upon the skills and practice those skills and, and continue that learning journey. Yeah, this has really been great. I appreciate you. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all of the great questions. I love when the chat is just lighting up. It means means we're doing something good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, a quick question. Where can people find your book? You can find it everywhere. It is on Goodreads. It's on Amazon. You can get it direct from my publisher, which is Kogan Page. And if you use all caps demanding more, you can get 20% off as well. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sheree. And thank you, everyone, for doing this work, for being here, for doing this work and going on this journey with us. Um, my question for you all is, how will you demand more from leadership? What will you take from this conversation and, and put into place to demand more? Upcoming next week with Manisha Amin, it's okay to make mistakes as an ally. We're going to talk about how you make mistakes, how we forgive each other for making mistakes, how we apologize, etc. Thanks, everybody, and have a good week. For more learning resources about this episode's topic, visit changecatalyst.co slash allyship series. Allyship is a journey. It's a journey of self-exploration, learning, unlearning, healing, and taking consistent action. And the more we take action, the more we grow as leaders and transform our communities. So what action will you take today? Share your actions and learning with us by emailing podcast at changecatalyst.co or on social media using hashtag allyship podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel and share this. Let's keep building allies around the world. Leading with Empathy and Allyship is an original show by Change Catalyst, where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. It's produced by Juliet Roy and Be Your Change Media with the team at Change Catalyst, Renzo Santos, Araya April, Sally Moiwewa, and Emily Moss. Thank you for listening to our show and taking action as an ally. See you next week.